Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. So, last week we talked about Tell Sid, the sale of British gas and the whole idea of Thatcher's popular capitalism. Well, we enjoyed it so much that we decided to do another follow-up on another share sale from the 1980s the privatisation of BP in the autumn of 1987. And it's also great to welcome back author and, of course, former stockbroker, Philip Auger, to talk about this as well. Kind of you to invite me. Thank you. Well, BP is, in a way, the flip side of Tell Sid because it's kind of an object lesson in how not to conduct a major public share sale. And that's, of course, what the, the Sunak government is proposing to do with NatWest this year. So we thought it was worth going through the story of the BP sale and what went wrong. We should start by filling in a little bit of the story about why the government had a stake in BP and why it wanted to sell it in 1987. But first, you know, why is the government looking to sell shares in BP in that year? And partly, I think it's very opportunistic. It's got this big stake sitting around. I think Nigel Lawson, who's the Chancellor of the Exchequer, has had a big giveaway budget in the spring of 1987, ahead of the general election. Once Margaret Thatcher has won it, he's keen to balance the books. And here's this very large, valuable stake in this oil company. And he decides to bank the proceeds and keep his budget plans intact. The whole sort of uh, privatisation story at that stage, as we discussed last week in with British Gas, is, is riding high. The city seems to be capable of doing almost anything. Exactly. This looks like easy stuff at the time. I I mean, I remember that period very well. The early months of 1987 were were months of great confidence. We'd had Big Bang the previous year. The city was functioning incredibly well in in those opening months after Big Bang. It's often forgot that people were actually making money. The first nine months of 1987 were profitable ones for the city. We all thought we'd got Big Bang taped. We all thought everyone was a genius. We were all much cleverer than we than we had previously thought. And it all seemed very easy, yes. So I think that that, that sense of false optimism, of self-confidence, over-preening self-confidence, was very much present in the city at that time. It was boosted, of course, by the presence of the American banks for the first time, who were not only orders of magnitude bigger than anything domestic in terms of investment banking, they were also mad keen to get established in London. So there was a huge amount of competition between them, which uh, added to the excitement. So with this sort of very favourable backdrop, high stock prices and lots of, you know, large banks flush with capital, keen to play in the London market, Lawson takes a bold decision, which is to sell the entire 31% stake the government has in BP in one large block, which is worth roughly £7 billion. There's also a a rights issue thrown in as well. So they were raising a a bit of money for the company. But that was pretty big mouthful, even in a bullish period, was it not? Well, very much so. It was, was, I think, the largest of the privatisations to date. I think it was bigger than gas and bigger than telecom from memory. Reflecting back now, it's amazing that we hadn't started to question this because, in fact, the London stock market had peaked that summer Mm. in June, July, and it was sort of 
beginning to dribble away. Wall Street had been a bit more confident, but you know people were talking about a rise in interest rates. So against that background, this unprecedented sort of second secondary issue was a very big ask. Yes. Yes. And and the other thing I think to add is that oil privatisations themselves, of which there had been two, had a somewhat iffy history on the London market. So in 1982, Mrs Thatcher decided to sell off Tony Benn's British National Oil Corporation, which became known as Britoil, and was a complete flop. And the second one they did was they carved the oil assets out of British gas and called them Enterprise Oil and tried to sell that. And that had basically been sold so cheaply that it was immediately bought up by another oil company on the first day of trading. So it had had a kind of slightly awkward history. A chequered history, (laughs) yes, quite. It was not uh, as straightforward as it perhaps seemed on that day in uh, October 87. Yeah, but you wouldn't think so when you get to the pricing meeting, which we had to turn to Nigel Lawson's own memoirs. He met with Michael Richardson, who's a quite famous merchant banker who acted on a lot of privatisations. And very good friend of Maggie Thatcher. He was her go-to investment banker. Yeah, he was sort of Jeeves to Mrs Thatcher's government. Yeah. He'd uh, actually gone to Rothschilds a few years before from Casanova, the, who was, which was very much then in its pomp and very much in its heyday as the sort of the mm. blue-blooded broker of, that called all the shots on these capital markets deals, yes. So Richardson hosts this uh, pricing meeting at Rothschilds and he suggests he's going to sell the shares at 330p which is a 6% discount to the 350p share price. And in Lawson's memoirs, he recalls, I astonished both Michael Richardson and my officials by crying, done, as soon as the price, for which Richardson apologised, was put to me. It was the shortest pricing meeting in which I ever participated. Well, because Lawson was not exactly a greenhorn here. He knew what he was doing. And uh, I don't know whether there was any collaboration beforehand, but he could see that that was a very tight discount and it would play well with the Tory faithful and was not seen to be giving away too much of the equity. But also quite risky. Well, it was more risky than he realised because, of course, just as they were organising the underwriting for this, along came the famous hurricane. And I remember lying in bed on the night of the hurricane, listening to the bricks from the chimney of my house falling down into the fireplace where against where the bed was fixed. And the next morning, the place was completely devastated. Seven Oaks became one oak. A huge number of people just couldn't physically get to work. So you had a really difficult moment there, even before the market opened. But even before then, some of the BP people were not wildly enthusiastic about what Nigel Lawson was proposing. The chairman of BP, a man called Sir Peter Walters, is astonished to learn that Lawson wants to do the wholesale in one block. You know, he says to him, I think that's risking failure. You know, anything can go wrong. It's the biggest share offering ever made in this market. And he suggests that instead of doing it all in one go, he should do it in slices over a number of years, as some privatisations have been done, and trying to make the point that, well, you might get a higher price in the second tranche. But he's told very firmly by Lawson that, no, 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 we've got far too many other privatisations and we need to do it all in one shot. 
So the sort of stage is set for what happens on Monday, the 19th of October. Because, of course, Walters was not exactly a disinterested observer since he had a considerable amount riding on the value of his share options and was not happy at the prospect that they might be pushed down by this. So I think that uh, Lawson was quite right to aim off a bit on his advice. We should fast forward to what happens on Monday, because of course on Monday the 19th of October 1987, the market falls by about 15%, and BP's shares go down in a pile of rubble, a bit like Neil's chimneys in Sevenoaks. <laughs> and, <laughs> and by the middle of the week, they're trading at 260p, which is well below the share price that Michael Richardson proposed of 330. Well, at that point, of course, it had been underwritten by these big institutions who were terrified at the thought of losing a very serious amount of money. But the other point that Walters makes, because the way the share sale is structured is that they don't have to pay up everything on day one, the, the new shareholders. They pay in stages. The first tranche part payment is 120p then they pay over the next two years the balance. And the point that Walters makes, he says, you're selling 30% of this company and you're basically offering somebody the chance to come in and effectively, for a very small stake, financial stake, buy a huge leverage position in BP. (laughs) And now this whole thing has come to pass because, of course, the partly paid shares will be trading in the market at about 50p after the the sale has gone through. So the BP view is it's made the company very vulnerable to somebody coming in. And indeed, Walters makes this point. I know Neil thinks he's a bit keen on his options, but he does make this point on a number of occasions to Lawson, leading up to the sale as well as after, obviously. And at this point, Lawson is under huge pressure from all sorts of sources, including the governor of the Bank of England, advising him strongly, urging him to cancel the whole thing so as to get the underwriters off the hook. Essentially, it all just goes back to the status quo ante. And he is hugely resistant to this. He's even has a go in the House of Commons where at one stage he says the Labour Party has demonstrated that it's the friends of Goldman Sachs who were one of the major underwriters. And you can imagine how well that went down on the left-hand side of the the Labour Party. He gets a lot of lobbying. He gets James Baker, who's the US Treasury Secretary under Ronald Reagan. He says, called me on 27th of October to urge me in the strongest possible terms to call off the issue. Alan Greenspan, another titan, comes in with the same sort of advice. And Walters himself, so BP's chairman urges him to pull the sale on the 28th of October. So Lawson's come under a a lot of pressure to call it all off. And, And it's worth saying as well that politically it's a little bit awkward for him because some 270,000 people, small investors, Mrs Thatcher's people, have applied to buy shares at a partly paid price of 120p, which are going to be worth 70p the day after. (laughs) This is not a happy position for a small shareholder to be in. So he's got lots of pressure coming into him from all directions to do something. He's quite robust on this, isn't he? He is. And he he makes the interesting point, look, 
that is the kind of risk underwriters have, have to take. That is why they are paid fat fees. Mm. Unlucky folks is pretty much what he says. And of course, he's able to say that now because after Big Bang, the former sort of thinly capitalized stockbrokers have become swallowed up into much bigger merchant banks. And critically, the big Americans are now playing in this. So he can afford to be robust. Plus, of course, as far as the 270,000 small shareholders are concerned, this is taking place just after a general election. So there is no there is no sort of immediate political <laughs> so, pressure. We don't care about them anymore. Uh, <laughs> we do need to just bring in a little bit more history here, because the second part of this story is to do with what happens after, basically, Lawson says, we're going to go ahead. BP is not a conventional nationalised company that the government is selling. It's a company which was nationalised by someone who's not normally regarded as a friend of nationalisation, Winston Churchill, in 1913. And Winston Churchill nationalised what was essentially a, an oil field in southern Iran, which had been discovered by a kind of gold prospector come wildcatter called William Knox Darcy, because he wanted to ensure security of oil supplies for, among other things, the Royal Navy. This is a strategic company, which the government has owned for many, many years. And for a very long time, it's, there was an obvious reason for the government to own it, I suppose, which was that it basically had most of its oil concessions across the empire. And the government effectively stood up for it and made sure that it continued to be able to enjoy its concessions. And indeed, in the 1950s, when the Iranians tried to nationalise the oil fields in Iran, the government went so far, once again under Churchill, to organise a coup <laughs> to kick out the prime minister, a man called Mossadegh, who had tried to nationalise them and restore things to the status quo ante. This is not a normal company. This is a company in which the government has a kind of strategic interest to do with energy supplies. And then what happens, of course, after the share sale goes ahead, is that the Kuwait Investment Office, which is a sort of arm of the Kuwaiti state, which is a petro state, decides to start buying shares in BP and builds up a stake. And that clearly changes the situation once again in an awkward way for Nigel Lawson. So he told the Bank of England to set a floor price for the new shares. The floor price was pretty low. Indeed, it was so low that the price of the trading shares never got there. But it was as, as much of a compromise as he was prepared to make to at least limit the pain to the underwriters. And of course, in the end, the bank never had to buy a single share. But as Jonathan said, the KIO was in there very quickly. And because there was a huge turnover in the shares, they built up a substantial shareholding very fast. And this was not considered to be a very good idea. No, it really wasn't. So why does the government still care about this? In the sense that by the 1980s, BP no longer has sort of oil concessions in imperial colonies and relics of the empire is most of its oil comes from the North Sea or North America, which is one of the other things which is driving this share sale, is that they want to sell shares to North Americans because they are buying more oil companies on that side of the Atlantic. And yet the government is clearly embarrassed by what has happened. 
And my sort of sense is one of the reasons why it becomes a hot issue is if you think about the 1980s, it's only kind of 15 years after the Arab oil embargoes of the 1970s in, after the Yom Kippur War. And there's still this idea that you do not want to become excessively dependent on the Middle East. And there is this idea that the Kuwait Investment Office will essentially be a front for the Kuwait Oil Corporation, which will use the very large sort of marketing network that BP has around the world to pump it full of Middle Eastern oil and not encourage BP to go and prospect on its own behalf in North America. This basically becomes a bone of contention between the British government and the Kuwaitis, that they are concerned that they will come by a back door to control BP. And that control would include boardroom representation. Yes where they could interfere in BP's sort of strategic decisions to protect Kuwaiti interests. That, I think, was specifically what was bothering Walters. Yeah, Walters was really bothered about that. He said, they could get rid of me. (laughs) (laughs) That is quite understandable. No, he he doesn't want a a substantial shareholder throwing its weight around with a different agenda from the rest of the board. So that was quite understandable. And really, that would have been intolerable, I think. And indeed, shortly afterwards, the government got the point. My favourite story of this is Lawson summons the Kuwaiti ambassador and the oil minister to come and see him and tells them that the government regards the share purchases that the KIO is doing as a hostile act. So it's all very grand, as if they're expected to start sort of doffing their caps and and (laughs) dashing off to sell the shares as quickly as possible. But the next day, the KIO stake goes up from 18% to 22%. So they basically completely thumb their noses at this pressure. (laughs) It's only when the Monopolies and Mergers Commission decide to investigate. This is, of course, the old days when they could intervene on political grounds that essentially the Q80s are told that they have to reduce their stake to 10%, which is what they ultimately do, selling a lot of the shares, ironically, back to BP, who therefore use some of the the money they raised in the 1987 share issue to buy back the shares that they sold to the Q80s. Yes, I don't think the Q80s really had much choice because it was quite clear after the meeting that they were not going to be allowed to keep that stake and the Competition Commission or Monopolist Commission was a, a suitable way of distancing the government from the decision that uh, they're going to have to reduce the stake to 10%. And neatly gets Margaret Thatcher out of, the, out of a bit of a bind as well, because she's initially told the House of Commons that the KIO stake was just strictly a commercial matter. Yeah. <laughs> yes. How yes. to square the circle, yes. Basically, Lawson does come out of it with his shirt intact. You know, one of the arguments he makes throughout is that it's really important to go through with this because essentially it's about the reputation of London after Big Bang and after all the privatisations as a place to do business. The government is very keen for the city to be seen as this successful powerhouse. How much a feature of this is driving the BP share sale? And and to what extent does the city come out? You know, what is the verdict on how the city navigates the kind of oil slick that is BP? I think rather well, actually. I think that the city, this is the city after Big Bang, and it proved that it could handle 
deals of a completely different order of magnitude, really, under tricky market circumstances quite smoothly. But ironically, I think that this period marks a shift in the city in one important sense, in that I think that the BP sale and the role that the American investment banks played in that as distributors and underwriters actually solidified the Americans' position in the city. And it kicks off the whole process by which these bright, shiny new British investment banks that were formed at the time of Big Bang are quietly outcompeted by the very powerful Americans. I think it was a big moment in that whole story. So sort of Wimbledonization of the city. We provide the ground and the uh, Americans provide the stars. And it started with BP, I think. And that's because mm. they've just got much more money and they're seen to be richer and more powerful. Absolutely that, yeah. Well, they're just so much bigger <laughs> because of their domestic market, of course. I know you're a huge fan of Nigel Lawson and all his works. Well, not all of them. I was a huge fan until he started believing his own publicity, which is always a mistake. (laughs) But I think this shows all the signs that he is believing his own publicity. He comes out as quite cocky through the whole thing, just dismissing other people's advice. And yes, he comes out of it with his shirt intact, but he's slightly got himself into a mess from which he has to ex- extricate himself. But it didn't take very long for the share price to pass the 330 offer price. So it was a moment of panic for the city generally. One of the interesting longer-term effects is that if you look at a chart of UK share prices, the collapse on that Monday is almost impossible to detect. Yes, in longer term. That's true. It was a blip. It was a blip. But at the time, you know, it was the first real crack we'd had in the London market since the bear market of 1973-4. We were in in the new world. We didn't really know where the floor was. And for that crucial week, it was very disorienting. In the end, actually, I think you needed someone who would take a, a long, clear view, who wouldn't panic. That person was Lawson. And I think by avoiding the sort of pulling the issue, it did do quite a bit to enhance the city's status and in some ways enhance the government's status as a trustworthy vendor of future privatisations. And that became very important over the next few years. Mm. So a, a nasty moment, a wobble, but it worked out okay in the end. Underwriters lost about 700 million, I think, on it in, altogether. That would have wiped out the old city but spread across the Americans and the new better capitalised firms. It showed that Big Bang had kind of worked. I agree with that, Philip. I think it was a a very severe test for the city and it passed. And look what happened over the, the next 20 years. The city prospered in a way which was inconceivable before then. A golden age. So the BP sale, a kind of interesting interlude, but one that marked a change from one world to another. That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.